Um, would, would you turn with me to the book of Jonah? We're going to read, uh, starting in chapter 3, verse 10, and we'll read to the end of the book. Um, and I would like you, if possible, to, to grab your own Bible and read along the words. It will not be on the screen to encourage you to grab your own Bible. If you don't have one with you, uh, you can always pull one up on your phone, or there's actually a Bible in front of you, in the, in the seat pocket in front of you, somewhere that you could grab. Um, if you don't own a Bible, uh, I never asked the pastor for permission to do this, but I think it's fine you can take the Bible home with you. It will be our present to you. Uh, we'll just get a new one. That's fine. Because um, it's good to have a Bible. But let's, uh, let's go ahead and read the text, starting in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10, and read until the end of the book. And this happens right after Jonah has preached and Nineveh, the Ninevites have repented. And this is where it goes from. It says, When God saw their deeds, they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. The Lord said, Do you have a good reason to be angry? Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint and begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. Then God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. Then the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals? Now, when you think of great literature or great art or great movies, usually the best ones, it's not just there for entertainment. Usually the artist or the author or the director puts everything together in such a way to, to communicate something to us, to give us a certain message or to make a certain point. And the same is true about biblical narratives, the stories in the Bible. They're not just there for information. They're there to also communicate something, to make a certain point and teach us. And this is especially true in the book of Jonah. What we will s now, often when we talk about Jonah, we will talk about or focus on some of the miraculous events. We'll talk about Jonah himself, how first he didn't go and then he went. We talk about how he was in the fish. We talk about the amazing repentance and revival in Nineveh, how they turned from their evil ways to the Lord. 
But all these things are put in the book to focus on this conclusion that we just read. Everything is lined up. The authors put together every word, every sentence, every paragraph is there to show us or teach us something here in the very end of the book. And that's what we want to look at today. We're going to take a look, kind of go through the book, and then focus, see how everything lines up to make that point in this conclusion and teach us something about how we should respond to other people who are different from us. But before we go into the details, I want to make a couple of points about the book itself because, because of these events, the miraculous things that happen, a lot of the time people will say, well, you know, this is a story used to teach, it's not really historical events. You know, people just, you know, kind of like a fairy tale or something told to teach something. Um, but there are three points that kind of stand against this and show us that everything in the book of Jonah really happened. Um, the first thing is that the style of the book, the way everything is told, is very similar to how the Bible talks about the prophets for Elijah and Elisha in the book of First and Second Kings. The style is very much the same, and those are definitely presented as historical events. And the second thing is that Jonah was a historical person. He is referenced in the book of Second Kings. Um, he ministered during the time of a king by the name of Jeroboam in Israel. There were two of them. This was the second one. The first one was the guy who was in charge of Israel after it split from Judah. The second king came later by the same name, and he was not a good king. He is one of those kings that it says you know, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And Jonah was a prophet during that time. But when we read about what Jonah got to prophesy to him, it's kind of surprising. In 2 Kings 14.25, it says, uh, he, which is the king, King Jeroboam, he restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. So even though we have a nation here and a king who does not follow God, instead of Jonah going to the king and said, hey, you're doing evil, this is not going to end well, Jonah got to prophesy that, hey, you're going to be successful. You're actually going to increase our land, and we're going to get these military victories. Which, as far as I know, is the only prophet that brought that kind of a message to a king that was actually turning away from God. Um, but it just shows that, first of all, Jonah was really there, and secondly, that the kind of messages he got to give probably got him in, in pretty good favor with the king. Um, and the third and, and probably most important reason to take these events in Jonah as real historical events is that Jesus himself refers to both Jonah's stay in the fish and the repentance of Nineveh as real historical events. You may remember that he talks about Jonah and the fish. He will give a similar sign to the, to the Pharisees and referring to his death and resurrection for three days. And he talks about the repentance of the Ninevites. He tells the people in the cities where he has been, even the people of Nineveh repented at the, the preaching of Jonah, and here is one greater than Jonah, but you haven't repented. So you're basically worse than the Ninevites, is the implication there. But Jesus refers to these as real events, and so if, if they're 
you know, Jesus says they're real events. I think it's safe to say that they are real events. But again, the story is not just to tell us about these events. The story is written in such a way as to teach us a very specific point. And so the author tells us about these events in a certain way. And the way he does it is by contrasting and bringing together the two main characters in the story, which are God, of course, and Jonah. And what we'll see is that God and Jonah are completely opposite in the way they behave, in what they do, and in the way they react to other people. And so we'll firstly, we'll look at a merciful God, and then we will look at a merciless prophet, and then how they are brought together in this conclusion, a powerful lesson. So let's start with looking at how God is portrayed as a merciful God, and we'll go back through the story a little bit, and what we will see is that in every part of the story, towards every character in the story, God is portrayed as a God full of compassion, a God of mercy, a God of grace. Um, we, we just read chapter 3, verse 10, and if we go back there, it says, When God saw their deeds, the Ninevites, and that they turned from their wicked ways, God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So the Ninevites have repented, and God says, well, I am not going to destroy you now. But we see earlier in the book that God has that same kind of mercy and compassion on other characters as well. If you look at chapter 1, chapter 1 is, is the part where Jonah runs away and goes on board his ship, and then God sends the storm. And the sailors pray to their own gods, Storm gets worse and worse. They come and find Jonah and say, hey, how about you pray to your God too? But Jonah never shows that he actually prayed. He said, oh, this is because of me. And then they find out from him, well, why in the first place did this happen? And then Jonah says, well, throw me overboard, which we'll look at in a little bit when we look at Jonah in more detail. And the storm stops. And then um, it says about the sailors in verse 16 of chapter 1 then the man the sailors feared the lord greatly and they offered a sacrifice to the lord and made vows and that is old testament language basically for they had now become worshipers of israel's god and so through their interaction with jonah these sailors have actually become followers of jonah's god even though jonah was probably not a very good testimony but God still through his life has now brought these sailors to him. And then we also see God's mercy on Jonah himself. In the next, uh, the next section here, uh, verse 17, it says, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. Now, if the fish hadn't come, Jonah would have drowned. If you are thrown overboard on a ship in a storm, there's no chance you're going to survive that. Most Israelites did not like the sea, did not like water, probably did not even know how to swim. But God saved Jonah from death. And it took Jonah a little while to realize that, but after three days, he finally recognizes it. And at the end of the prayer, in, verse, in chapter 2, chapter 2 is his prayer to God from the fish. And at the end of it, he says, um, in verse 9, "...but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving." That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. 
So Jonah has come to that conclusion that, okay, God is merciful to me. God has been good to me in saving me here. And so we see God's mercy to the sailors, God's mercy to Jonah. We, we already saw in chapter 3 God's mercy to the people in Nineveh. And so he is merciful to everyone in this story. The author focuses on God's mercy and compassion for everyone. And that's how God is portrayed from the beginning of the story to the end. Opposite God, the very contrast of this merciful character of God is Jonah. And Jonah here is portrayed as a merciless prophet. He is unkind, uncaring, unfeeling. Some people say, well, he kind of changes, but what we'll, what we'll see is that Jonah doesn't actually change. Um, but let's let's kind of trace Jonah throughout this story, because the, the author does his very best to portray Jonah's character as um, being very bad, basically. Um, let's go back to chapter 1 and read the very beginning. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to, to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, paid the fare, and went down in it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now what's going on here is God tells Jonah, go up and go to Nineveh, which would have been further upland, so he would have to go up physically as well. Instead, Jonah decides to go down. First he goes down to the sea, then he goes down in the ship, and later we'll see he actually goes down in the sea. So what the author is saying is that physically, Jonah is trying to get away from God as far as he can. And as far, as away, as far away from God's command to him as he can by going down instead of up. And then we see that he's not only physically removing himself from God as much as possible, but also in his attitudes, in his beliefs, in his concern for other people. If we look in verse 6, this is where chapter 1, verse 6, it says, The captain of the ship approached him, this is in the middle of the storm, and said, How is it that you are sleeping? Get up, call on your God. Perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. In other words, the captain is basically saying, Well, we, we are all here praying to our God concerning because we're all perishing. You're here sleeping. You don't care that we're perishing. And so Jonah... Jonah's very character here is opposite to God. God wants him to go to Nineveh to save the people there. Jonah doesn't even care that the people on the ship are perishing. So he's the very opposite of what God is doing here. And then the other question, and maybe you've never thought about this, is but why does Jonah tell them to throw him in the sea? If Jonah had recognized, as he clearly did, that this was God basically stopping him from running away, the logical thing to do would be to say, okay, God, you're right, I should go to Nineveh, let's turn the ship around and go back to Joppa. Right? But what does Jonah do? He says, oh, just throw me in the sea. And what he's saying, in fact, is just throw me overboard, I'll die, and we'll all be done with this. So I don't have to go to Nineveh. 
So the, the, the very fact that he wants to be thrown in the sea shows that he cares, he would rather die than do what God asked him and go to Nineveh. So again, he is, he is completely opposite and out of sync with what God wants for him. Now, we know that the storm stopped when he was thrown into the sea, and Jonah would have died, except God intervened there. It said in verse 17, as we read, God appointed a great fish. So God specifically made this fish go where Jonah was to make sure Jonah wouldn't die. And then Jonah prays, and we just looked at part of that prayer where Jonah recognizes that God saved him, but there's another part to this prayer that shows that, you know, even though Jonah now recognizes God has kept him alive, there are still some, some troubling things about Jonah here. Um, if you read verse 8, he says, Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. Their faithfulness meaning the, the faithfulness that they could receive from the Lord. Who is he referring to there? It would be the sailors. Because the sailors all cried out to their idols and their own gods. And so Jonah is basically saying, well, these sailors with their own gods, you know, I, I know you've saved me. These sailors, they, they're kind of hopeless. They've forsaken their hope. But what we already know, as the readers, is the sailors have actually already turned to his god. So Jonah basically said, well, they, they're these other people Okay, you don't really care about them. I don't really care about them. But we know God has already cared about them and has already shown them mercy. So God, again, does the very opposite to Jonah or what Jonah thinks he should be doing. And here's one other question that, again, that may be kind of a, a thing we just take for granted. Jonah was in the fish for three days. But what it says was that he was there three days, and then he prayed. So here's Jonah sitting in the fish for three days, refusing to pray. For three days, he's probably still hoping that he will die in that fish. Because that was what he wanted for in the first place. And after three days, he finally realizes, okay, God, I know, you're, you're saving my life here. Thank you for doing so. And as soon as he prays, it says, the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. Now that word vomited, the, the original word, usually is a word of disgust. And it doesn't just say, and the fish you know, brought him to dry land. It specifically says he vomited him out, showing that there's still some things that are not right with Jonah. There's still some things that are disgusting. And then we come to chapter 3, and this is where some people say, okay, Jonah kind of changed, you know, first he ran away from God, but now, now he goes to Nineveh, which is good, and it is, but it's kind of like when your kids have to clean their room and they really don't want it, and you say, if you don't clean your room, you're going to be in big trouble. So they clean, not because they want to, but because they know that there's no other option. And, and in fact, it goes a little bit further because God doesn't just punish Jonah, he basically picks Jonah up and almost forcibly drags him to Nineveh. So it's not just saying you're going to be in trouble if you don't clean your room, it's picking your child up, 
putting him in the middle of his mess and standing there while he figures out eventually that I better clean this up because there's nothing else that I don't have any other option. So Jonah goes to Nineveh because he has no other option. There's no way he, he can't run away from God. He, he won't even be allowed to die instead of going to Nineveh, so he might as well go. And then we, we read a description here about Nineveh, which, is, which could be a little puzzling. It says uh, in verse three of, uh, chapter 3, verse 3, it says, So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Now I don't know how much you can walk in three days, but if you keep walking for three days, that would be a really large distance. And based on what we know about Nineveh, it didn't take three days to go from one end to the city to the other. So most likely what this means is, is it would have taken him three days to go out around the city, visit the important squares or the important places and preach his message to make sure everyone hears it. But it says in verse 4, it says, Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then it stops. And then it tells us about the Ninevites' response. So Jonah should have taken three days to go through the city and preach his message. What does he do? He goes, one day. And on top of that, he gives them an eight-word sermon. He said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. But in spite of Jonah trying to do as little as possible and give them as little as possible to work with, the Ninevites still respond, and not just a few, but the whole city. And this kind of gives us a contrast with Jonah. Even in, inside the fish, it took Jonah three days to even respond to God. Here the Ninevites get one message, one time, and there is a massive response in the city. It says that the people repented. It said the message came to the king, and the king told everyone to repent, to wear um, sackcloth, which was their sign of being in mourning. Um, it, it even said that, he, sa he said, let no one eat, not even the animals. We may just be able to stop God from destroying our city if we repent and are sincere about it. So that's where Jonah has gone there. He's still doing, you know, still very opposite to what God's want him to be. And then we kind of get to the craziest part over here where, where we just read. Because we now, now know that God has not destroyed the city. And let's read again in, in chapter 4. It said, um, But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. Now, our translations may not make this very clear to us. If you have an ESV, you may find it in the footnote there, but literally it says, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. And that evil there is the same word for the wicked way in, in chapter 3, verse 10, and calamity in chapter 10. So what it's saying, in, in effect, is the Ninevites did away with their evil ways, with the, did away with the evil, and God did the way with the evil that he said would come to Nineveh. 
So they've both done away with their evil, the Ninevites and God, so they're you know, in sync. But here is Jonah, and it says, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. So while everyone else in the story is doing away with their evil, Jonah now says, well, this is, this is evil to me. This is bad. So he's the only one bringing the evil into the story at this point. So he is still, still completely out of sync with God here. And then what he says next is kind of mind-boggling. In, in, chapter two, in verse 2, it's, So he prayed to the Lord. The second time Jonah prays, the first time was in the fish. And now he prays in response to the, the salvation for Nineveh. He says, Please, Lord, was this not what I said while I was still in my own country? So he's saying, this, I, I told you so. Basically, how we would say it. God, I told you so. Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. So I didn't want this to happen. For I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in love and kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Now, that, he didn't make that part of himself. It, it comes from Exodus, where God reveals himself to Moses after Moses said, no, show, show me your glory. God said, well, if I show you my glory, you're going to die. But I'll put you here in this, in this rock, and I'll pass by, and you may look out at the back of me so you can still live. And when God comes, he announces himself, and in Exodus 34, 6, it says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in love and kindness and truth. That's how God announced his own character to Moses. And Jonah knows. Jonah knows the Old Testament, the books that they have, the law. So he says, God, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abundant in love and kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. I knew, I know you're, I know that's who you are. And that's why I didn't want to go. So what, what Jonah is saying is that, God, I, I knew you were the kind of God who would save these people. And I was trying for that not to happen, so that's why I was running away. I told you so. I, I knew this would happen, but I didn't want it to happen. And so it's crazy to think that Jonah knows God's character. He knows the right words to say, but he wants the very opposite. He wants for Nineveh to die, to be destroyed. It, you know, sometimes at the beginning of the book doesn't tell us why Jonah didn't go. It just says Jonah got the word from the Lord, but he went the other way. So we don't find out until here in chapter 4 why he didn't actually want to go. And it wasn't because he was scared. It wasn't because he was afraid. It was because he didn't want Nineveh to be saved. He wanted Nineveh to be destroyed, and he would rather have died than bring this message to Nineveh, which he knew would lead to their salvation their repentance. And he knew, because this is the way God is, that as soon as they repented, God would not actually destroy that city, and that's why he is now not very happy at all. So all throughout this book, we have a merciful God showing his mercy to everyone in this story, and we have Jonah here, who is the complete opposite, who does not care about anyone else, who wants everyone else to be destroyed, the sailors, they're not Jews. The Ninevites, because they're the enemy, so God better destroy them. And I better not preach to them because they may turn 
to God and be saved. And that's the last thing Jonah wants. So that's how the story, this contrast is now set up. And this is where it's going to read the last part of the book, the conclusion, where the main point and the main lesson is made, not just for Jonah, but for all of us, as we will see. So let's look at this, this powerful lesson that the author is teaching us here, the author being God himself, of course, since it is scripture. Um, starting in verse 5, it says, Then Jonah went out from the city and sat east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat under it in the shade until he could see what would happen in the city. Now, again, we, we know this part from every time we heard the story after Jonah, this is one day preaching event that should have taken three days, he goes out of the city. Now, if you were told by God to go to this other place and preach his message and people were repenting massively, what would be the, the thing that you would do? Would you leave them? Would you stay and teach? Well, Jonah leaves them to their own devices. He doesn't want to tell them anything more about the God. So he said, and it says he, sit e he is sitting east of the city. Oh, the cool thing about the Bible is that it all, when it tells you something like that, there's always a reason. When it tells you a description about a person or a description of a direction, there's a reason why it tells you. It's not just for fun. Every, everything is there for a reason. And if we look at, especially the book of Genesis, we find that going east is always a bad direction. When Adam and Eve left the garden, they went east. When Cain left, he went east. When they built the Tower of Babel, they went east. And when Israel and Judah went into exile, they ended up going east. And so the reason I think why the author specifically says he's on the east side here is because there's that connection, that, that meaning there that's saying he's, he's still going the wrong way. He's still running away. He's still not doing what he's supposed to be doing here. So that's where Jonah is, it's still very much Jonah, very much the same. And now God is going to teach him a lesson. Um, we read it starting at verse 6 here. So the Lord God appointed a plant, and it grew up over Jonah to be a shade over his head, to deliver him from his discomfort. And Jonah was extremely happy about the plant. It's the first time Jonah is actually happy in the story, <laughs> is when he has a plant and has some shade for himself. And it says, But God appointed a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant and it withered. And then the sun came up. When the sun came up, God appointed a scorching east wind. Now, you see a word here that just gets repeated over and over? The word appointed. So this is God. You know, we saw it one time before when God appointed the great fish. So God specifically intervened to save Jonah's life there. And that's what the word means here as well. God is specifically intervening here to set everything up for this lesson. So first he appointed a plant. Then he appoints a worm to attack the plant. And the plant died. And then on top of Jonah being in the sun again, he also appoints a, a, an east wind, a wind coming from the desert to bring that hot air to make this as uncomfortable for Jonah as possible. And then Jonah does his whole whining thing again. He says, um, can I please die because it's better for me than to live? 
I'd rather not see you saving the Ninevites, and I'm uncomfortable, so I'd rather just be gone at this point. And so everything is now set up for these final verses where the main lesson comes. It says, And God said to Jonah, Do you have good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to death. And then the Lord said, You know, sometimes... Sometimes you read the Lord said and you say something. Sometimes there's a, the Lord says, and you know this is significant. This is where it's all, what it's all about. The Lord said, you had compassion on the plant. The only thing in his whole story Jonah had compassion on was this plant. You had compassion on the plant for which you did not work, and which you did not cause to grow, and which came up overnight and perished overnight. In other words, Jonah, you, you had nothing to do with this plant. You didn't make it, you didn't make it grow, but you had compassion on it anyway because it helped you being comfortable. And then God, and, 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 and at this point, I, I hope you got this sense that Jonah is set up throughout this whole story to be ridiculous. His actions have been ridiculous, his attitudes have been ridiculous, his whining has been ridiculous. And the point of, of showing that is that it's not just his actions that are ridiculous, but his very mindset about the Ninevites is ridiculous. His very mindset about who deserves compassion is completely ridiculous and completely opposite to what God wants for him. And then God put that contrast here in verse 11. It says, Should I not have compassion on Nineveh? the great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. Um, and, and most people that write on these things say the, the reason probably God even pointed out the animals is to say, well, Jonah, you may not care about the people, but you're so into plants right now. How about these animals? You could at least care about the animals, right? And so Jonah, the ridiculous, is here, here his, his attitude is here shown to be crazy and ridiculous and, and completely opposite to what God wants. And sometimes people ask the question, well, what happened to Jonah at this point? We don't know. And the reason we don't know is because Jonah isn't really the student that this story is written for. The story is written for us, and these questions at the end here are addressed to us. And the power of the story is that you know, we have been reading this, we've been laughing at Jonah, we've been laughing at his attitude and his, his actions and everything he does and everything he stands for. But now this question, the purpose of this question is to turn it around and bring us to self-reflection and say, hey, am I being ridiculous like Jonah? Now, Jonah is clearly exaggerated to make sure we understand it was ridiculous. But the question is the same. It's saying, hey, how about you? Are you like Jonah? Now, when the book was written, this was written to, to the Jews, and it was to tell them, hey, you guys, we're, we're so into ourselves, our own country, our own little tree protecting ourselves, we should have compassion on all these nations around us. But for us, that message is very much the same thing. And our example in, in this is, of course, Jesus himself. 
if we, even just going through the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew, we find that he is, he is characterized by his compassion. Let me just read you a few verses here. Matthew 9.36, seeing the people, he felt compassion for them. Matthew 14.14, 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them. Then 15.32, and Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I feel compassion for the people. And 20.35, moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes when he heals the blind men. So Jesus, Jesus is, is characterized by compassion, which shouldn't be a surprise because Jesus is God, and we've just seen in this whole story that God is characterized by his compassion and his mercy. And for Jesus, probably the most incredible way we can see that is when, of course, he died on the cross so that God would be able to forgive our sins when we trust in Jesus, when we repent. And that is probably the greatest show of compassion that we know of. And I don't know if you have realized and experienced this compassion and mercy that God has for you. And if not, there's only one way to really get there, and that's by believing and trusting in Jesus. And sometimes people say, well, I, you know, I believe. I believe. Now, we know when Chris preached in James, it says even demons believe that Jesus is real, that he died and rose again. And so what, what, what Jesus is telling us, what it says when we believe, is, is an active trust, a, a belief that we also act on by repenting. And then we are given this, you know, if we do believe in Jesus, we're given a new life, and that new life should be characterized by this same compassion. And that's where this lesson comes in. And isn't it great? The Bible, it could just have said, the whole book of Jonah could be summarized in one command, be compassionate. You know, Paul, when he writes his letters, just a little word, be compassionate, care for one another, you know how he gives those lists. But what, what, what God is doing here in his word, it's, he's just, not just saying, I'll oh, be compassionate. He's giving us this whole story to work on our, not just our mind, because we know in our mind we should be compassionate, but he's working on our, our will and our emotions. We look at Jonah and we say, he's crazy, he's ridiculous. And then the story turns around and says, hey, are you, do you have any of these ridiculous ridiculous things in your life where you aren't compassionate towards people who are different, who are other. It's very easy to love people that are similar to us. Very easy to love people with the same beliefs, the same moral values, the same ethics, the same political views, the same church, same social, social level in life. But what about people that are different from us? I recently came across some, some great examples, and it actually ties in very well because Clay was praying for Karenet. A few months ago, the youth group took a... Uh, we, we, we visited the Karenet facility here in Gig Harbor to learn more about their ministry. And one of the really cool things is that, you know, they're, they're a crisis pregnancy center, so they, people come there that need help that, um, when, when there's a pregnancy that's unwanted or... Um, they're married and it's not what they were planning and they help people with counseling, with uh, physical needs um, and try to discourage people from, from potentially having an abortion. But you can't make decisions for people 
and sometimes people do make these choices. The cool thing is that at that point, their ministry to these people is not over. It actually said they have classes, they have counselors to help people that have gone through an abortion. So here are people that make a choice that is completely opposite from what the candidate ministry is all about. But they will still say, you know, even though he did this, we are still here to love you, we still want to minister to you, and we want to counsel you. And that's a great way to love people that make choices that are other than ours. Another example, John goes to, to the Tacoma mission there, helping people that are homeless, helping people that are in very different, um, have a very different place in life than we have. But they reach out to them and help them and share the gospel with them. So there are some great examples that are, that are visible around us of how we can put this into practice. But there are also some bad examples, unfortunately. And the one that comes to mind most readily is probably social media. If there is one place where it's very easy to counter or interact with people that are very different from us, it's social media. And if there's one place to do that in a way that is not very compassionate, it's social media. For some reason, we are okay saying a lot of things on social media we would never say to someone face to face. And it's very easy to post something because you're anonymous, you know, these people may not even know you, or maybe they do. Um, it's very easy to kind of forget the compassion that Jesus is asking from us when we, when we reply, or when we post, or when we type something, maybe all capitals will come out. And that's not, that's not, you know, what if we first think through and say, hey, what is a compassionate response here? Because these people are different. And these people may have completely different views than us. But this description here in Jonah may be very apt. It's people that don't know the difference from their right and their left hand. And that's because, if you read the book of Romans, it's sin inside of us. Another... Another bad example that recently came out at the end of the month of May, there was a poll taken. You may have heard about this. It was by the Pew Research Center. And people were asked the question, do you think the United States have a responsibility to accept refugees into the country? And then people put, you know, I am this old, I have this education, those kind of things, so they could, you know, run their numbers and see, well, which, which groups in a country are most and least welcoming or, or want us, our country to be welcoming to refugees. And the sad thing, and I don't know who they asked about this, I don't know the methodology behind this poll, but, the, you know, so these numbers may not reflect everybody, but just the fact that they came out the way they did, I think, gives us a cause for concern. The group with the lowest percentage of people that said that our country has a responsibility to, ref, to except refugees, was white Protestant evangelical Christians. Only 25% of the people that they asked said, yes, I think our country has a responsibility towards refugees. So three out of four people that identified themselves as white Protestant evangelical Christians said, no, we do not have any responsibility to care for refugees, to have refugees come into our country. And I know there's politics behind things and different things, 
But if we just take a step back and say, well, what is a compassionate response? What is a compassionate response to someone who has had to leave their country because of war, because of conflict, because of whatever reason? Is it to say, no, we don't really have any responsibility here? Or is it to say, yes, let us care for you? And not just that, maybe another question we can ask is, well, what is best for the kingdom of God and the gospel here? What is the best way that these people may hear about God's love? And so those are some things where, where the book of Jonah becomes very real. This, you know, we know the compassion of God, just like Jonah did. We can either be like Jonah and say, well, we don't care. We just want our own comfort. The only thing we really have compassion for, the only thing we really care for is our own comfort, this little tree that protects us from the sun. Or are we like God who says, I have compassion for these people. I care about these people. I want these people to be rescued. Now, working on a sermon, studying a text, and thinking about applications should lead to, and, and Chris can probably, and Mark can probably tell you all about this, but you know, once you start interacting with a text, it is the Word of God, and it starts working on you. And what I started realizing as I was walk, walking through this text and studying is that I have a tendency to, maybe not in things I say, but at least in the things I think, be judgmental towards people that are others. Uh, I may see a homeless person, or I may see a homosexual couple, um, and my first thoughts are not thoughts of compassion, usually. And so what I started learning going through this is, you know, these thoughts are not right. And, you know, I don't know each one of you, but I know that we also have a sinful nature inside us. And so we probably all have at least some sort of judgmental tendency towards people that live in sin, do not live according to what God wants. And I, th I found out that there's two steps to trying to get beyond this judgmentalism and get to that step of compassion. The first one is prayer. As soon as thoughts, judgmental thoughts come, what we need to do is change them around, and the best way to do that is prayer. <coughs> Excuse me. And I found that as soon as I notice these kind of thoughts coming in, saying a prayer for these people, for God's blessing and for their salvation is a very powerful thing to stop this judgmentalism and to instead have this attitude of compassion. And then the second thing that we can do is to start acting compassionately. And it's not a matter of, okay, I, I need to start feeling compassionate toward these people so I can act compassionately. Um, in fact, C.S. Lewis, he wrote in the book Mere Christianity, um, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable, which is his English way of talking about you know, this love, compassion that God wants us to have, um, it would be wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. Some people are called by temperament. That may be a misfortune for them, but it is no more a sin than having a bad digestion is a sin. And it does not cut them out from the chance or excuse them from the duty of learning charity. 
The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love them. So what he is saying is that the right way of doing this is not to sit there and say, oh, I just need to feel more loving, I just need to feel more compassion so I can be more compassionate. What he's saying is that no, the way to do it is to start acting compassionately first and then the feelings may catch up with you. They may not. Usually they will. But for example, talking about the, the gospel mission, you know, we may say, oh, I don't really feel compassion for homeless people, so I don't think that's for me. Well, probably the better way of thinking is I need to act compassionately towards them, so let me go there and see these people and then allow God to use that to be compassionate. So being loving and compassionate towards someone doesn't start with feelings. It starts with prayer and starts with actions. And so we... We have looked at the book of Jonah today, and, and we see that we've seen that the author, by bringing together this, this merciful, compassionate God and this merciless and, and uncompassionate prophet, the, the author, God, the Holy Spirit, through this book, is confronting our own attitudes, our own actions, our own beliefs. So, do we respond to others, people who are different from us, as Jonah does? only caring about our own comfort? And, or do we respond as God does, with mercy and with compassion? A, a mercy that is so great that he gave his own son for us so we could be rescued and saved. A mercy that's so great that he saves a, a, a city of 120,000 people because they turn to him. So that's the challenge from the book of Jonah for all of us. And let's be a people who show mercy, who show compassion, not because we're so great, but because that is the character of our God that we represent in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a compassionate and merciful God. If not, we wouldn't be here. If not, we would have long been destroyed because of our sin. But you sent your son to die on the cross. And because of that compassion, we are here as your church. And Father, as we meditate, as we think about and study Jonah, we, we pray that we would take this message and you would help us to, to be prayerful and to act compassionately towards other people. Amen.